Amen. Please be seated. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Titus chapter 3. Today is the last sermon from this great epistle from Paul to his pastoral protege, Titus, who was sent to the church in Crete to help set things in order, to make that church strong. You have noted by now that Titus contains a running balance between doctrine and duty, what is true and what to do. And very simply, what we can say is true, and what we ultimately learn that is true is God's gracious redemption to us sinners through Christ. Ultimately, we learn what is true is our complete acceptance before the Father because of the Son. Ultimately, we learn what is true is that Christ has paid for every sin we have ever committed and every sin we ever will commit. Total acceptance by the Father because of the Son. That's what true, what's true. Now, on that basis, on that foundation, we are given various commands and ways we can obey as a response and gratitude to what God has done for us at the cross. What is true is sovereign grace. And sovereign grace ultimately is what brings God glory. When he is totally responsible for the saving of sinners, this brings God's ultimate glory to fruition and manifestation before men. Now we come to the last verses of this epistle, a stark warning against majoring on the minors or becoming distracted from sovereign grace, which is the way God receives glory. You could see why people would attack uh, our flesh, the devil, the world would attack the doctrines of grace. Because if you get rid of the doctrines of grace, you remove the glory of God. Uh, the doctrines of grace most manifest God's glory. And so you can understand why Paul is vigilant in warning Titus about not becoming distracted from grace. Hear God's word. I'll start at verse 7 of chapter 3, down to verse 15, the conclusion. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not to be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this wonderful epistle of Paul to Titus and by extension to us, the church now. Pray, Lord, that you would continue to remind us of what is true, your saving sovereign grace for your glory, and what we must then do, live according to your commandments, that we would mirror what it is that you express is true about us, our unity in the faith. I pray that you would help us, Lord, uh, to show forth this to a watching world, and that you would receive the glory, and more would come to know Christ. Thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. Who can actually 
say how much time and effort we, the church, uh, have spent in unfruitful things over the years. Uh, just the division in Christendom attests to the fact that there's all sorts of conflict that has, has affronted us from the beginning. Jesus warned of this. Still, we succumb to it on a regular basis. Schism and division, constant disunity, we fight against it as a church. Uh, we strive at the wind. We seem to fight after things that are worthless, that are fruitless. Uh, a great story reminds me of this when this, uh, in the 1750s, this Admiral Phipps of the British Royal Navy uh, was told by his superiors to hold at Quebec City, where the French were, and he would hold there and uh, wait for the land troops to come, and the land troops would come, and they would provide cover for those land troops from the sea. And as the admiral was there, uh, off to the coast of Quebec, he got there two days early, being as efficient as he was, and he noticed all the Catholic churches there that he disdained, and he saw all the various statues of the saints. And having two days to kill, he thought it'd be a good idea to target practice on these statues. And for the better part of two days, and how many shells were spent, uh, he shot at these things. Well, when the land army came, he had nothing left to shoot to give them cover. The church is a lot like that. We fight after stuff that ultimately leaves us with blanks when the real battles come, when the real fight is before us. He succumbed to majoring on the minors. He went after worthless things. I think what we have in the conclusion to this great book is God's grace to us as the foundation again giving us great purpose in life. We can bring glory to God by the lives we're given and all the many things he's given us to enjoy. We have great purpose now because of God's grace. And we have hope for the future as a result. We live for something. But we must not become distracted by ultimately worthless things. These final words of Titus are important. And basically, they put together or compare two things. Living in light of God's grace means that we should focus on that which is profitable. Also, living in light of God's grace, as we have been speaking of, means we have to avoid or shun or turn our back on those things that are unprofitable. The wisdom is in knowing the difference. Let's look first at the text as it starts with living for things that are profitable in light of God's grace. First of all, verse 8 begins, the saying is trustworthy and I want you to insist on these things. We have here God's grace as the foundation for our lives. Why do I say that? Well, verse 8 says, the saying is trustworthy. This is a reference to what has just come before in verses 5 through 7 in particular. Uh, verses 5 through 7 are the trustworthy saying that is referred to here. It's called by some the epitome of Pauline theology. It's the summary of the gospel. Look at verses 5 through 7 of Titus 3. You'll see there how it is that God's grace to us in Christ is the foundation. It's, if you will, the main thing. Now, don't lose this, that the glory of God is the main thing. But the way God brings glory in our lives is by redeeming people. Verses 5 through 7 say, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness. So there's no room for our boasting. It's according to his will. But according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The glory of God comes in this, that there's no room left for man to manipulate God here. It's utterly God's act of salvation that makes us righteous. Therefore, all the glory goes to him. Not even a little bit of the glory goes to man. This is all God's glory. This is the doctrine of grace. It's God's glory, but it's our benefit, isn't it? So salvation is not contingent upon how good I am. 
contingent upon the goodwill of God working itself out in my life, and that brings him glory. So the glory of God that is most manifested by the gospel of true sovereign grace, this is the trustworthy saying. This is what is the foundation for our whole life. Everything you do, it comes back to this. Everything. So what is it about to be said uh, here that he insists upon? Well, it's the doctrines of grace. And he says he insists upon it because I would believe that it becomes so common and so challenging to keep the main thing the main thing. He's about ready to warn us about not falling into foolish arguments and so forth. So he says to insist on these things. Keep insisting on these doctrines of grace. Why? I believe without saying because people will always have trouble with that. What do you mean? I don't do, I don't do something? I should do something. And it's mixed uh, motivations as to why we want to have part. Partly we want to offer something to God. Other part is we don't like the idea of God being God. Well, insist on these things, he says, because this will constantly come under attack. The saying is trustworthy. Christ died for you, for me, and the result and acceptance we have before God is because of him. This is the trustworthy saying. Jonathan Edwards said wonderfully about the gospel of grace, and he had the same concept that we're describing here. He said that gospel expansion is finished wholly and entirely in free and glorious grace. Glorious grace shines in every part of the great work of redemption, Edwards writes. He says the foundation is laid in grace, the superstructure is reared in grace, and the whole is finished in glorious grace. Edwards got it right, and he witnessed a revival. We can see that again in our day. If we hold forth the torch of God's divine grace. God's grace to us in Christ is therefore the foundation for our lives. Verse 8 in the second portion says, I want you to insist on these things. Paul telegraphs the distractions that will inevitably come. Ultimately, his grace will mean his glory, so therefore it's going to be contested by man. You can be sure of it. So therefore, in light of this foundation, notice then next that we are to pursue good works then for the right reason. It's in light of grace. The what is true, what to do in verse 8. Look at the second part of verse 8. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Paul knows what motivates people. Ultimately, it's not guilt. It won't last long. It's not fear. It won't last long. But motivation that's based on gratitude or response to what God has done, the trustworthy saying, God's grace, now that's a reason to devote yourself to good works. Big difference. We are to devote ourselves to good works because of God's grace. We are to devote ourselves to obedience because of what God has done for us. We are to devote ourselves to growing spiritually because of God's unmerited favor shown towards us in Christ. When we're overwhelmed with a sense of what grace really is, then we can seek God's will. We can live according to his model. Notice what it says in the last part of verse 8. These things are excellent and profitable for people. In other words, preaching and teaching and living the gospel of grace, that will have fruit. That will have profit. That is worth focusing upon. That will change people. Augustine lived a life of total futility before he came to Christ. Listen to what Augustine says about the change in his life from going from fruitlessness to fruitfulness and what change or where that change came from. Augustine said, How sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose. You, speaking of God, drove them from me. You who are the true, the sovereign joy. You drove them from me and took their place. You who are sweeter than all pleasure. A total change that only the Holy Spirit brings of life to death, to fruitlessness, to fruitfulness. 
from futility to purpose. All there, the simple conversion of one man, Augustine. Same for us. The purpose we have in our life is to live for the glory of God. We can do so by the grace of God. We are free to obey God now. Obeying God will not make him love you more. Your works are never meritorious. Obeying God does not make you better than others. Obeying God is the chief way that we bring glory to our saving father. Try this sometime when your child asks if they should do something right or wrong. and Think about it for yourself. Say, go ahead, do what's wrong if you really want to. Do you really want to do that? Do you want to? If, speak of yourself. Think of what temptation. Go ahead, click on that internet site. God won't love you less if you do. But do you want to? In light of what God's done for you, do you still want to? Think of how powerful a motivator that is over time. I'm not saying you won't fall, but how's the other plan working for you? How's guilt and fear work? But when you're secure in the grace that God's given you, it changes your whole ethic. The reason why you do what you do when no one else is looking. Isn't that really what ethics are? When no one else is looking? Or you think no one else is looking? powerful. It changes your life. It will ultimately transform a church when they come to a grace awakening like this. The real question we ought to ask is not will I get caught or is this the right thing to do or will God like me or love me more? Will people think more of me? Really the real question is do I want God to be glorified in what happens? That's the right question. Notice the final very personal words of this letter. Verses 12 down in verse the verse 14 and 15. This closing has some personal uh, statements made. You see in verse 12, when I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, uh, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis. So he's, t- he's showing the personal side of his ministry. He knows people. He strategically places certain people, certain places. Uh, he's obviously going to either relieve Titus so Titus can go on to another ministry or just give him more of a team to work with. Verse 13, do your best to speed Zenos, Alorian, Apollos on their way. They must have been stopped there in Crete. See that they lack nothing. Give them what they need for their journey. But notice what is said next and last in verse 14 and verse 15 because it comes up out of the same foundation of grace. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help causes of urgent need and not to be unfruitful. So we know where fruitfulness comes from, so help them devote themselves to good works. Verse 15, all who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. And the last words are fitting for this epistle. Grace be with you all. Not work hard at it. Come on, guys, you got to do it. I just said, grace be with you. Don't be unfruitful. In light of God's grace to us, we can now focus on profitable things. The things we do have meaning, have purpose because of God's grace, because of their ultimate purpose to bring glory to God. Now let's consider the other side of this equation that is so forcefully met by the Apostle's warning in verses 9 through 11. In light of God's grace to us, we are also to shun or avoid unprofitable things, something very difficult for us to do. Two distractions are to be dealt with here in verses 9 through 11. One has to do with arguments. The other has to do with particular kind, a particular kind of individual. Let's look at the arguments first in verse 9. We are to avoid foolish, time-consuming arguments. Verse 9 says, but, a fo- but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Now you'll see four activities are warned against. Uh, they're not all the same exact thing. In fact, they probably had an exact particular referent that the reader would have understood. 
uh, foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels. Now, I think we all, though, can think of modern-day equivalents for each of these when you think of what they are. First, there's foolish controversies. This refers to splitting hairs uh, concerning this or that maybe interpretation of Scripture, but it might be some disconnected, extra-biblical custom we have that we try to tie biblically and, and, and force it upon everybody. Church is famous for this. We do this all the time, personally, and we do it corporately as well. Now, it's not that this won't be pre- happen in the church. It's not what we're saying. But let's not get enslaved by it, be given over to foolish controversy. There'll always be some controversy. But how much one gives over to it, how much a church gives over to it, and gets distracted from what grace is, that's the real question. Foolish controversies. 2 Timothy, another of the pastoral epistles, Paul writing to a young pastor, says this, 2 Timothy 2.14, Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good but only ruins the hearers. You know, nitpicking at little things just to argue for argument's sake. And we in the Reformed Church, maybe you're new to the Reformed Church, are classic for this kind of splitting hairs. Now, part of this is honorable in that we come out of a tradition that challenged something that was erroneous. But it never really, we never really got over it. And so it's not so much that there's something wrong with challenging whether something's scriptural, it's whether or not we start a new denomination every time we come up with something. You think I'm being facetious? Look at, look at the family tree. It's split. They call the split peas for a reason. Ruins is what Timothy says. It ruins the hearers because it distracts us from God's saving grace. Theological or doctrinal hair-splitting over matters like which version of the Bible to use, uh, pet interpretations of biblical text on non-essential areas, what hymns we should sing, what style we should have for this or that. We should not be defined about what we're against all the time, but rather what we are for, which is the glory of God. That's how we should be defined as a people of God. Really, I would love it if the news would depict us that way instead of anti-this or anti-that. Sure, we're going to be anti-this or that. We believe the Bible. There's going to be things that confront the culture. But the reason why we're anti-this or that is because we're pro the glory of God. Foolish controversies are something that can certainly distract us. Genealogies. This is a reference to a primarily Jewish tendency where there would be these wild allegorical interpretations of the nameless in the Bible and some that aren't in the Bible. In whole histories and traditions would be written up about this sacred family or this special line. And these arguments would break out, especially in Jewish Gentile churches, where certain Jewish folks were trying to maintain a certain primacy in the culture. Well, we're from this genealogy that descends from this person, and that always leaves a Gentile out. What is he going to say? So these genealogies would divide churches, and they were foolish. In fact, Timothy, again, is warned by Paul of this, when 1 Timothy 1 verse 3 says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than a stewardship from God that is by faith. Don't get distracted by this line that comes up in the church or this faction that comes up. Keep your eyes on the main thing, Timothy, when genealogy and that kind of teaching comes up. But the text also refers to dissensions. This refers to a a church body, quite frankly, that's just quarrelsome. They just like to fight. They they love conflict. They have constant uh, controversies coming up. There's envy. There's suspicions. There's uh, 
consistent friction within a body of believers. Dissensions that just hit every church deals with it at some level. The question is, how do they deal with it? Do they deal with it? Or is it just always allowed to bubble under the surface? Now, I hope you've noticed something already that way back in the beginning of this series, there was a particular instruction that Paul gave to Titus to do something first. Do you remember what it was? Qualified men as elders. First thing. Because much of this, brothers who are elders, come under your watch care. Because things will happen in the church. But the eldership is primarily responsible for shepherding a body through these kinds of things. That will happen. Uh, We're people. Uh, Does your family ever have a a squabble? Well, the church will too. The question is, how do parents handle the squabble? How do elders shepherd the church in this situation? Dissensions will come up. Foolish controversies will arise. Quarrels about the law is also referred to here. Jewish influences there again sought to keep a level of adherence to the civil law code that they were so familiar with, to press it upon the Gentiles. In its worst form, they insisted upon circumcision even for new Christians. We see that addressed by Paul and Galatians and later in the book of Acts or earlier in the book of Acts during that same time frame where Paul has this matter addressed before the apostles. Quarrels about the law, though, if you think of them in our day, could just simply be legalisms, that you've got to do this in order to be accepted by this community or by God. Now, I want to say, with regard to these four different areas of distraction, these foolish, time-consuming arguments, that I am not, and the text is not, suggesting that there ought not to be arguments or disputations. The text is not a prohibition against theological controversy. Jesus was a controversialist, if you're honest about what he did. It is saying that foolish arguments, ones that are away from the main thing, that take over the life of a church, those ought to be avoided. Division is a serious offense to God in his church. When Jesus says the way that you will know my church is not by all the things we usually think a church is identified by, but rather by their unity, by their love for one another, you could see why Paul is so vigilant to make sure they maintain unity and be careful not to be distracted from the main thing. When I came to this church, like I mentioned, the Reformed Church has got all sorts of opinions on things, like every church and denomination probably does, but we're particular. And so I would constantly have, especially when we were a smaller church, have people come who wanted a church that was just like their thinking, the Bible, the, the Bible said. And it wasn't the main thing. We basically would agree on the main thing. But then they would have all these little things that were important to them. Uh, Pastor Tony, uh, what is your view of the end times? It's a classic question I got constantly. And I'd tell them kind of a thumbnail sketch and they'd look at me like I was a liberal or something because I believe Jesus comes back at this kind, of, this kind of order rather than that kind of order. Not that I don't think he comes back. I think he comes back bodily for us. There's a resurrection. But that wasn't enough. It wasn't detailed enough. What I love about this church, though, is I'm able to say that I, if you really want to know, I'm a post-millennialist. And I know that a couple of the elders are amillennialists and a couple are premillennialists. I love that. That's what we are. Because we all think Jesus is coming back and we win. We're sure of that. But that's not going to be, it just will not be a point of foolish controversy here. And there are many things like this. They're all worthy discussions and people can have convictions about them. We encourage you to have them. But we're not going to be defined by them. Christian liberty, the Sabbath day, spiritual gifts, theonomy, the place of God's law today, how to evangelize, law and gospel relationship, pedo communion, grape juice or wine in communion, a position about Israel, the type of counseling, the length of the days of creation, worship style, the level of subscription to the Westminster Standard, sonship, tradition, Christian education, all important, but they're not going to define us. The gospel of saving grace, God alone will define us. 
We'll have the discussions, I encourage them, but they will not become points of division. We certainly have to have positions on these things. And if you know me, I've got a few opinions. And I think you should have my opinion. (laughs) But I think you should have Christ more. And that's what I hope and pray is always what is set before us at this church. Never, ever apologize for convictions that we have but make sure that they don't become the main thing that steps out in front so what people see is that and not Jesus and not God's glory. I can't always put into words exactly how this works itself out. God has preserved us to some degree here in spite of me, in spite of us. But let's maintain that we have to constantly keep this before ourselves. If we expect to see God use this church to transform a culture, We have to keep the main thing the main thing. And unfortunately, it's so rare anymore to hear the true gospel preached that is all the glory to God, that that alone, if we will just maintain that, will have an impact, a huge impact. That alone. But there's another warning, not just against these foolish, time-consuming arguments, but very personally against divisive people. Verse 10 and verse 11, As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Certainly not Joel Osteen-esque here, is it? It's not feel good. What this is, is calling sin, sin when it occurs. And that it's not all right to have in a church. It's not all right to have someone who's divisive. Now, it's not that someone doesn't mess up from time to time and has to be called on it. It's when they've been warned once. Then they've been warned twice. That's it. Don't mess with the bride of Christ anymore on this. I've always been thankful for this kind of forthrightness in the leadership here as far as we are very open with each other and with you, hopefully, about such matters. It wasn't too long ago, and I suppose this thing happens more often than not in the church, but I had never personally experienced where someone was kind of new and came and started saying things about me to other people that just weren't true. And uh, thankfully, it got to enough people that said, that's just not true, or have you talked to him about this? And uh, when he couldn't say he did, they warned him once, warned him twice, leadership was notified, and that person was able to be correctly put on guard for what they're saying, without having any intention, obviously, to have the truth in the way of it. It was just a matter of being divisive. And there are, believe it or not, some people are just that way. I'm not talking about people that just really want to know an answer to something, or maybe tend to disagree, or, or have kind of a like to debate. I don't even mean that. I mean the one that comes to divide, that really is there just to break up the unity that is there existent. Paul recognizes this. It was existent then and it will be existent today. Paul warns against such individuals and that we have to be clear and concise and decisive about how to handle this issue of unity. It's very serious. This is what is referred to in the letter to Timothy as well, 1 Timothy 6.4, speaking of the one who comes in to divide, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He's an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions. Just taking notes to find out when the first thing that's off base in their mind comes up. And then not go talk to get clarity personally, but did you hear what, can you believe he was that wrong on what he said? Do you think he's right on what he, until you find a sympathetic ear and then we've got our faction formed. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, it says in 1 Timothy. They produce envy, dissension, slander, and evil suspicions. Paul says, warn such a person once, twice, and then shun them. It's kind of Matthew 18 in high speed. 
Confront once, confront two, second time, third, tell it to the church. Discipline. Verse 11 again in our text, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. A divisive person is given an ear in the church. It will spread infection that will poison the body of believers. Romans 16, another letter of Paul to the church. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. For such person does not serve the Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. That's the purpose, the divider who comes in. And remember, all of this focuses us away from the main thing. Really, the problem with divisiveness or division is that it causes us to be so enamored with these side issues that we get really off track with what God has primarily given us to do. Finally, as we come to the conclusion of this great book, remember that God's grace to us has given us great purpose now and hope for the future. Therefore, we should not become distracted by ultimately worthless things. How does a church stay free from becoming bogged down with strife and division? How does a church stay free from distractions that fog up the windows of grace? Well, I think there has to be a constant focus on God's glory through the gospel of sovereign grace. That's all I got. No one's ever going to ask me to write a book on church growth or church planting or church this. That's what I got. That's what I think the Bible says. Constant focus on the glory of God, not felt needs, not all the other things that have periphery importance, but on God's glory and primarily through the gospel of, doc, the gospel of sovereign grace. That's the simple plan I've got. I gave it to the elders seven years ago. That's still the same plan I know. And I hope it's the same plan you have personally in your neighborhoods. Live for the glory of God. Believe what the gospel says and share that message. Believe it, it'll change your life. It will have an effect on everyone around you. It is really that simple. I just don't think, by and large, the church does this. And that's why we don't see the effect that we all long for in our greater culture. The glory of God is not what the church has become known for. It's how can it look like everything else? That's what the church has become known for. That's why we're not salt. Only a small group of people have to start believing this, brothers and sisters, to see a huge change. Doesn't take a lot of salt to flavor a lot. There has to be the constant focus on the glory of God through the message of sovereign grace. I want to close with words that are more profound than words I could ever pen. Again, Jonathan Edwards says, with regard to this, glory of God, surely if the angels are so astonished at God's mercy to you and do even shout with joy at the admiration of the sight of God's grace to you, you yourself, on whom this grace is bestowed, you have much more reason to shout. Consider that great part of your happiness in heaven to all eternity will consist in this, in praising of God for his free and glorious grace in redeeming you. And if you would spend more time about this on earth, you would find this world would be much more of a heaven to you than it is. Wherefore, do nothing while you are alive, but speak and think and live God's praises. That's, I think, in a nutshell, the message of Titus. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word and its clarity. Lord, forgive us for where we ignore it or we just say that's not for us. Pray that you would change our wills, that they'd be bent towards yours. 
and that we would long for the glory, your glory, to be had once again, to be longed for by the church of Christ in America, in the world. Lord, change us, change our desires from ourselves to you and help us just to realize for just a second, Lord, that this actually means what's best for us. And I pray that we would see this and rest upon this, strive after this, long for this, share this, that your glory would be had and that it would be seen through the gospel of sovereign grace. You doing the work of saving us through your son, your perfect son, and your work of continuing to grow us. May you receive all this glory. In Jesus' name, amen.